welcome to Digital Health Unplugged, coming to you from various places across the UK as we continue to record remotely. I'm Andrea Downey, and today we are going to be talking about breaking the backlog. As lockdown restrictions have been eased across the country, we are now starting to look at what happens next, because we're not quite out of the woods yet. During the pandemic, thousands of appointments have been postponed to keep face-to-face contact to a minimum, and many patients have put off seeking help for conditions that aren't related to COVID. All of this means that once the worst of the pandemic is behind us, the NHS will face a different pressure, the backlog of appointments that haven't gone ahead over the past few months. So today we're going to be looking at what happens after COVID-19 as the NHS starts to resume normal services. Joining me to talk about how tech can help in this situation is Tom Witcher, founder of digital health innovator Dr. Doctor. Hi, Andrea. And Graham Kendall, director of the Digital Healthcare Council, which represents a number of digital primary care services. Hi, Andrea. So thank you both very much for joining us today. How have things been for you guys over the last few months? It's certainly been um, a special time to be in digital health, shall we say. I don't think any of us, when we started digital health businesses, were expecting a pandemic. Um, but it's brought uh, it's brought a unique set of challenges, um, but it's been quite it's been quite exciting and and gratifying to be uh, close to our partners acting on the front line and feeling like even if we're only a tiny part of the solution we're doing something to help yeah I can imagine it's been really busy it has I mean certainly for for us at Dr Doctor it's been it's been our busiest ever time we we moved remote immediately um when we saw that that was going to become um something everybody was doing and also changed our business to moving on a one weekly sprint cycle as opposed to two weekly sprint cycle uh, and used it as an opportunity to launch our video consultations product and a number of COVID-specific solutions. Um, so getting those built and live and in the hands of patients and trusts has been has been crazy whilst trying to transition to everybody to remote working. Yeah, I can imagine. How have things been for you, Graham? Well, um, one of my colleagues keeps telling me that I should stop using the word unprecedented because I'm using it all the time. Uh, but of course, the reality is there are so many things that are unprecedented um, that we are um, to some extent overwhelmed by the challenge. But people have responded really well. Um, there have been um, a whole range of different things that I think were very hard to predict initially. Um, We've seen, one of the great things is that we've seen people flex really quickly, as Tom was saying, change change plans um, to meet demand. Um, There've been, um, and and there's this been interesting explorative uh, period where we've been trying to work out what really will make um, the most difference. What do we need to recall and keep from before the pandemic and what do we need to do differently going forward? So it's been it's been really interesting, challenging um, and um, I'm, I'm sure no one would want to be in this situation uh, by by choice. But nevertheless, I think the, the sector as a whole um, and certainly with the DHC have been really uh, um, yeah, we found it to be a good experience albeit in the context mm. of yeah it's definitely really shown how helpful technology is um, and also how quickly we can get it going um, when we need to which I think is probably a good thing for the NHS um, so let's look at the backlog now we're seeing some really alarming figures uh, over the last few months about the impact these postponed appointments are likely to have gp appointments are down by a third and hospital admissions are 
probably at about 15% of the capacity that they would normally be at, which sounds like it's a good thing because less people are seeking care, but actually it means people are putting off care and they're going to go back to their appointments when this is all over. Uh, There's been some really alarming figures coming out this week uh, where experts have suggested that an extra 35,000 cancer deaths could occur due to the delays in diagnosis and treatment during the pandemic. Um, Those were worst case scenario figures, but still that's a huge number and it's very worrying. Um, And then on top of all of that, there's the pressure it will put on the NHS, particularly with admin um, that comes with trying to get through such large amounts of postponed appointments. So where do you both think the biggest backlogs are likely to be and what role does technology have in breaking those down? So, yeah, we, uh, we've seen really similar numbers, Andrea. And the last last count that we had from uh, summing up the data we've got across our clients and, and, and making that national is 10 million people waiting by the end of the year, which is which is quite a scary number, isn't it? Mm, yeah. uh, in terms of the biggest backlog, so we're we're seeing endoscopy being an area where there's real pressure and um, it's very, very important that we start those services, getting back up to full utilization as quickly as possible. Um, and in ophthalmology as well, we're seeing we're seeing large, large backlogs. Partially, I think, because ophthalmology was a, was in a service under pressure anyway. Um, but that's been made made significantly worse by by people deciding not to travel in. Yeah, because that's the thing, isn't it? there's always been pressure on the NHS and there's always been services that have struggled to keep up with demand anyway. And now it's, it's almost sort of making it worse because we've put off so many appointments for so long. Yeah. I, I, I was talking about this just the other day, actually. And um, I don't think at all that the backlog is a new problem. I think supply and demand have been out of sync in, in all Western healthcare um, services for quite a long time now. Um, and in the NHS that, that, that sort of comes through as a, as a waiting list and in, in other health economies, it comes through as sort of increasing costs. And what COVID has done is it's it's kind of uncovered this problem. So we, we do need to think really differently about how we how we reset and how we deliver care going forward. It's, a, it's an opportunity actually for the health service to rethink how it works. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with the comments that you've just made. Um, uh, but just to throw in a few figures, uh, so today at the time of recording, a couple of hours ago, we got the latest waiting time stats um, uh, and the numbers waiting. So that's covering the period of um, up to the end of May. Um, if we look at those, they are truly um, startling. So we now have, of the people who are waiting for operations, um, we've now got uh, something in the order of um, about 20% of them are waiting over 26 weeks. And of course, the target is that um, 92% should be treated uh, or the treatment should begin within 18 weeks. But actually, um, at the moment, almost 40% are now waiting over 18 weeks. So, um, and of course, every time, every week that goes on with um, admission capacity being uh, decreased is an extra week that these people are waiting. So that's, you know, 40% of people waiting over 18 weeks. Um, and that's that's not that they are going to start the, uh, their treatment right now, that's that they are still waiting. Um, we haven't seen anything like this, um, the, the length of time that people are waiting um, at these numbers ever, um, which is you know, truly concerning. But the other thing is that the capacity um, of the system to then be able to cope and bring that backlog in isn't going to rise dramatically um, anytime soon because 
infection control, pressure on staffing, all of those different things that have led to the pause are going to continue. So um, certainly, you know, the modelling um, I'd suggest is that you know, having been involved in the 10 million forecast that um, the Confed published uh, uh, a few weeks ago, um, I, I think that is still still on target. If anything, um, that is over optimistic. Um, and that is just focusing on waiting times. Of course, there are lots of patients who are being treated for routine management of conditions um, who, so, you know, picking up the ophthalmology point that Tom was making, um, uh, there may be people waiting for elective procedures, but there are lots of just management of chronic eye conditions that are going to have to take place. Um, so that could push off, uh, push out the waiting time figures even further. Um, so it really is, it's a really grim situation. And when you're looking at all this data, you tend to just focus on the numbers. Every single one of those, of course, is a real patient suffering um, real, uh, you know, there's a real downside that every patient is experiencing throughout this. Yeah, yeah, I think when you see the numbers, they are obviously very high, but when you put them in perspective of that's that's a single person for each figure, it is really quite worrying. Um, yeah. And it's confronting. It is. Um, so I wanted to ask, what is the role that technology has in helping us sort of break down these backlogs? And are there any specific tools that the NHS needs to be looking at, um, putting in place to help get through the amount of patients we have to? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, on that point of, of technology and, and, and Graham, you're so right that in every one of those statistics is a person. The exciting thing about technology is it allows us to, to work through that backlog, but also make care far more human at the same time. And um, certainly that's the thing that gets me out of bed, I think in the morning is, um, I know we can have a real impact on on this, this growing problem, but at the same time, bring the person into care in a much more kind of engaged and centralized way, which, which is really exciting, actually. Well, one of the things that it's a bit of a cliche, but people have talked about the brightest minds of our generation being focused on how to get people clicking through on adver adverts a tiny you know, microsecond faster. Um, the challenge that faces us is so huge that we need to get that sort of expertise focused on tackling all the health challenges that now face us. Um, so it needs to be you know, when we when we ask the question what individual technologies or what types of technologies we need to bring i i feel as though we've only just begun to scratch the surface of the potential um we need to address the operational side to maximize the efficiencies in the way that we deliver um services that are kind of more traditional face-to-face -face services we also need to be able to um and there are there are some things that we can do to switch out existing services into a digital format already, and that's already begun. So things like um, online consultations, um, messaging, and the whole suite of things around that. But I think more than ever, we need to make sure that everybody is operating at the peak of their skill set. So we strip out all the things that can be done by technology that um, don't need to be done by individuals so that the individual clinicians can really focus on delivering the best possible quality of care. Um, and then underpinning that, um, or in, in parallel with that, we need to make sure that um, those, the reason why I use that example about the advertising thing is that we know ultimately that um, behavior change and managing 
long-term conditions is by far and away the best way for um, to, to minimize pressure on the health service and for patients to get better outcomes. But it's always been hard to affect those um, changes in behavior. Um, and we know that every individual responds differently to different sorts of nudges and different sorts of monitoring. So I think if we can, if we can get to a place where we understand what will help individual patients really um, improve or manage their conditions as effectively as possible, and it's, and it's personalized as the advertisements that come through um, to us every day and that we're used to in, in, in other walks of life, then we'll start to get to a position where hopefully the pressure on the service can decrease because basically people are leading healthier lives. Now there's a huge amount in that of course um, but ultimately that's got to be the and um, the long-term goal here because we're going to be facing this backlog. This is going to be you know, tackling the backlog is going to be going on for the next decade or so. It's not going to be over um, anytime soon. No absolutely and um you know, to sort of talk about some specifics on that. So in terms of the tech, I think it's, it is exactly that. It's, it's giving patients a personalized, holistic view of their care um, that nudges the behavior in the right direction. What we're finding is um, lots of the bits of the puzzle exist already. So um, for example, the work we've done at Nottingham University Hospitals around follow-up reduction, that, that project started a year or so ago, specifically focused on could we reduce um, follow-up demand in oncology. It's quite successful. We saw a 30% reduction in face-to-face -face attendances across um, cancer services at Nottingham. And um, they've taken that work and they've basically repositioned it as a way of helping get through the elective backlog. And it's it's almost exactly what Graham just said. It's, it's about working, essentially risk stratifying patients and saying, these people can be can be kept at home and we're only going to bring into hospital the people who are who are really sick or need a face-to-face -face intervention or or need something that has to be delivered in hospital so um you essentially get all your clinical colleagues working at the top of their practice doing doing the tricky stuff if you like and then everybody else can stay at home on the comfort of their own sofa use remote monitoring tools check in digitally um, and avoid the need to travel so uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a double win, much better for staff and, and far, far better for patients who, who don't want to travel in anyway. And then you add sort of the risk of COVID and the extra stress that brings on top of that. And there's, there's absolutely no doubt that people don't want to come to hospitals. So that's quite exciting. Um, and then if you combine that with things like video, and I think, I think video is really interesting because it's, it's obviously had massive adoption during the pandemic. Um, but in itself, it's, it's like one of the tools that can be used to solve this problem. It's really, it's a really important tool, but it's not the end solution. It's, it's really valuable for seeing a subset of patients who you need to check in with face to face, but, but for whatever reason, don't need to travel. And um, I think it's about taking these various bits of the solution, which all exist actually. I don't think any of this is tomorrow's technology. Um, and putting them together in a way which uh, supports a really different way of thinking about particularly outpatients. Actually, I think outpatients isn't going to be a thing in five years time. I think this, this concept of traveling into a building to see someone is, is massively outdated. And, um, you know, we're, we're going to be talking about speciality opinion and people coming in to 
um, coming in for a piece of surgery, but then using using technology to check in with their doctors for everything else. I find that outpatient um, example really interesting because one of the things that um, I've been thinking through is around how um, we have traditionally structured our services so that they're because they're physically located and they have to be at one point mm. have this physical base the um the patient has to travel through and shape their experience around the the physical premises um and if we were throwing if we had um the space to throw all of this up in the air and begin from scratch we and and really shape the experience around the patient you would um you certainly wouldn't make the patient travel into lots of small consultations which where they really don't need to be um face to face with 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 um, the the team of practitioners who are treating them and then thinking about that team we've got this distinction between primary and secondary care which is often quite um, a false distinction which again is a really just a historic artifact um, and there's no reason why you couldn't have through um, an online consultation multiple members of a team consulting um, on you know access to data that has been collected that's personal to that patient that's been collected you know through ongoing monitoring um, a whole set of things shaped around the patient and you're absolutely right that all the elements of that solution already exist but it's about how do you integrate them so that it works for the patient across the different elements of care um, mm. I think we have to get go down that route otherwise we'll be um, still trying to replicate in the online world what we're doing in the offline world which in, in turn is a huge miss, missed opportunity so yeah, um, yeah. I'm really glad to hear you say that actually Graham because I am um, I, I I have exactly the same thought like we need to break the kind of the place and time relationship that we have with care that's just there for historic reasons don't we and, and yeah. rethink all of those pathways from scratch do you think uh, COVID and the reset that comes out the back of the pandemic is going to give us an opportunity to do that? I hope it is, but um, do you think the will is there? I think the the scale of it, I think the will to do things differently is there, and certainly the um, what we've the big the biggest thing that we've seen, I think, in terms of response, is a willingness to embrace things that were historically there's been a bit of reluctance uh, for all different reasons. We've known we've had to get on with things, but the the big challenge now is whether there is enough space for people to really think what these um, new services will look like and be able to move towards them because the big barriers are still you know, there's in order to bring all those different elements of the service around for an individual patient you've still got the um, structural barriers in place around you know alignments of incentives to make sure that you know who's going to pay for this service um, where does the money flow which has a huge impact um, uh, you've got if you've got different methods of procurement going on if you've got um, if you're buying off a national list that doesn't necessarily give you the capability to shape the care service um, then you don't start you, know, you really need to get into the conversation about what the appropriate care service is that you're trying to deliver as a whole in order to be able to um, put those interventions in place so while i think there's an appetite what we really have to then do is break down some of the um, procurement and logistical barriers towards getting there um, and that means i 
you know, as a guiding principle, I think making the um, giving the money to pay for the service uh, to the end users. So that's the you know the clinicians who are actually delivering the service and giving them a real choice in in how they shape those services. I think is absolutely fundamental. Otherwise, um, we'll be buying off a list and everything will be the same kind of battleship grey, um, uh, and yeah. we'll we'll end up replicating things. So that's that's the really hard challenge. Uh, to some extent, it's always been that. That actually leads me very nicely onto something else I wanted to ask. Um, something I find a lot uh, working with digital health and speaking to a lot of suppliers is we're all sort of experts and advocates for tech. Um, so we, it's very easy to talk about how important digital solutions are and how much they're going to revolutionise the health service. But when it comes to them being adopted on the ground, there's obviously concern from clinicians and also patients using them about whether or not they're the right tool for the job, uh, whether they're easy to use, you know, what the benefits really are. Is it actually going to take them more time to use this tool than it would to just write down a note? Um, so I guess, Tom, this question might be a bit more for you. Um, you're obviously, you know, Dr. Doctor delivers on a lot of digital healthcare solutions. How important is it that these solutions are clinically led and they're not just about the tech? It's absolutely vital. We we have two core tenants when we build any new product um, and, and they're both about the user. They're about the clinical user and they're about the patient user. And if you don't consider the genuine needs of both of those from day naught, then, then the solution won't work. And mm. when we go and implement on the ground, um, the first thing we do, even if it's an administrative piece of work like appointment booking, um, we'll make sure that we sit down with the clinical directors and um, and explain the process change that we're making and explain um, the impact that we'll have on services. We make sure that um, that's going to be communicated to patients as well. Um, and from day one, it's considered a, a holistic piece of service redesign that involves patients, clinicians and managers. You don't have all three of those it ain't going to work. Um, yeah. And then when we when you build new tools, so certainly as Doctor Doctors evolved over the years, you know we started with with appointments and we've moved moved now very much into the clinical space with our follow up management um, and our waiting list tools. Uh, it's it's key that um, as a technologist you understand that every clinician runs their practice ever so slightly differently, and so product needs to be designed to accommodate that nuance. Um, and that doesn't mean replacing existing paper processes. It means understanding the specifics that are needed for that condition or that cohort of patients and building product which can flex to accommodate those needs, those types of data collection um, and the specifics that that, that 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 clinician needs. So for example, when we roll out, um, roll out our follow-up management tools, what we do is, uh, it's all of the, they're sort of built on a, on a survey technology, essentially, so you use patient recorded outcomes um, to collect data from patients and then benchmark that and make decisions about care. As part of the rollout, um, each clinician will validate the proms that we're going to use against normal practice. And we basically use data to say, right, you know, in, in, our, in our pilot cohort, are we seeing um, better results than we would have seen face-to-face -face, essentially and that that journey which we take the clinical body on is really important because it gives gives them confidence that this technology is going to help um and it and it it makes sure that you know what we're doing is fit for purpose 
And then the other thing that we that we see, which is which is fantastic, is going back to that working at the top of your practice point that Graham made, which is actually if you're if you're a actually anyone who goes to work, it doesn't matter if, if you're if you're a doctor or um, or if you're writing code, like you want to come into work and do the really interesting stuff. You don't want to do the the routine stuff. You don't want to do the the things you've done lots of times before. And what all of this technology allows you to do is it allows you to focus in on the interesting work and the difficult cases um, and the routine stuff gets automated for you so we tend to see even where there's some reluctance early on people realize that this makes their life much better particularly when you're talking about something like like a backlog which it's like this kind of looming um monster behind people's chairs you know looking at them going you know we've got 10 million patients work waiting how are we going to get through this uh, and if the technology can help triage that, can help prioritise those patients, can can act as a helping hand, that's a relief to most people. So that really helps with the journey too. Um, before you get on, before you start thinking about the knock-on benefits of potentially being able to work from home or having better data to do audit or using outcomes to improve practice. Um, so yeah, I think it's about a journey and it's about demonstrating that that this can be a better better way of delivering um, care for everybody, not, not just for the patient. And that is a fundamental point, really, that you know, people come into work to do good things, generally. And um, yeah. the, what this is all about is enabling um, that to be done in a more effective way. And and I think the point that you made about the clinician's ownership of the data, real buy into that. Um, we can collect information with, through digital healthcare that we just can't, within, you know, even with best will in the world, collect in an analog setting. Um, and we can collect that at every level. Now, you know, any anyone who's ever built a technology platform will know that those metrics are absolutely fundamental to harnessing every, uh, every element of the process. Um, you, um, and, and yet we seem to have this quite, bizarre um, relationship with data in the health service as a whole. So on the one hand, Matt Hancock again last week was talking about the need to move towards open data and publish things um, as, uh, as as much as possible in relation to COVID testing. And, and that's great. And we really need to go in that direction. Um, but what we've seen during the course of COVID is actually quite a, a lot of lockdown in data and, and a, a lot of uh, information black holes. Um, you can only change a service um, and prove that a service has changed for the better if you're collecting and publishing that information. And if we want the end users, the end, the clinicians, to be able to make informed decisions about a service, about which service to choose and how to develop a service, um, and to see that journey of progress, we need to have that information available. And unfortunately um we're not quite getting there i think so that's one really key structural area where i think we need to move forwards if we're going to make this vision happen mm. so the nhs is notoriously slow at adopting tech sometimes um but obviously this pandemic has shown us that we don't have to be as slow and we can move quite quickly when we need to are we now at a point with the health service uh, where it is ready and able to adopt these tools that are needed to get it through the aftermath? Or is there a risk that once this is over, we sort of go back to the slower process of, of taking too long to get something done? 
I think there's definitely a risk, but I, I also think there's a real appetite on the ground to do things differently and to make the most of it. So um, they, the, 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 the question that I would ask, you know, what do we need to do to make sure that we are, you know, it, it could go in either direction, but what do we need to make sure, um, what do we need to do to make sure that we go in the right direction? And to me, that's the point that we were talking about earlier about really integrating the solutions, um, understanding the user experience, and that's you know, absolutely the clinicians um, and also the patients, of course. Um, so what we're doing there is not really buying a commoditized single product that just does one thing, but we're really thinking about that integration element. Um, we need to unlock the money flow. So make sure that um, the, the people who are buying the service, the commissioners who are um, implementing it and, and the clinicians are choosing a service and they've got the ability to actually make a decision based on informed choice. Um, and and that's, you know, that's where the data comes in to allow them to make that decision based on evidence rather than who's got the best sales pitch. Um, and, um, and, and in some, and in some ways, this is a, you know, we're spending eye-watering amounts. It was the budget or the, uh, the mini budget yesterday, um, but we're actually spending a lot of this money already. Um, we just need to make sure that the, the utilization of it and the decisions about where it's spent get down to the people who are who are actually delivering these services. And then there's, there are actually a lot of things in place as well, because we've got um, a whole set of regulatory standards which allow us to make um, those decisions in a in a safe way um so we we do actually need to keep some of what we've got as well as um as, as change some of the approaches so all of those things i think start to come together and um if the will and the determination to drive that through and to devolve that power down to um people who are making decisions on the front line is there then then I think it'll be um, a positive outcome. But if if we if we go back down to the you know, back to the top down approach um, of providing solutions that are not integrated, um, then it's going to be much more challenging. Yeah, I, th I think you're right about most of that. I mean, for a long time we've been talking about um, adoption being the issue with innovation in the NHS, and the the, the National Innovation Accelerator wrote a great report on it last year. The thing that has always held back adoption of really innovative solutions in the health service has been it's been the risk reward ratio so it's always been skewed um, towards don't take too much of a risk because the reward isn't there and i've always felt that that's the thing that's held back kind of at pace change and i think one of the things the pandemic has done is it's slightly reset that balance and um it's shifted both the risk and the reward sides of it. So there is now a much, um, uh, it's far more likely that that people on the ground will will decide to take up slightly more um, untested, and I say untested in sort of inverted commas because um, most of this stuff has very strong evidence, but it just isn't yet at scale, um, solutions to the problem because there is no alternative. So I think that, that would be a really helpful forcing factor for the industry. I think there are some pieces of the puzzle missing still. Um, we mentioned the, the flow of money. I think that's really important. Um, but it's also really important that we don't just fund the shiny stuff. So 
I think the key enablers here are IT departments in hospitals and IT departments in hospitals are full of unsung heroes who sit there doing integrations all day, all night. Um, and generally speaking, they're hugely underfunded and there isn't more money available for them. And enabling those teams to grow and giving them more funding so that they can do the, the hard data stuff that lives underneath all of that is really critical to make this stuff work at scale for one. And then the other piece, which is vital, is, is the how if you do the change. And so we know there's good technology, but there isn't good uh, case studies and good learning out there for somebody on the ground who wants to run a digital transformation project. So uh, the AHSM network through and um, linked with NHSX, I know have worked really hard recently on how do we upskill people in, in what digital transformation means and the skill set they need to iterate and be agile. Um, but I think there's still work to be done there in, in giving our colleagues on the front line the skill set they need and the confidence they need to take technology and put it in place to solve real problems. There are a lot of levels, aren't there? Um, yeah. There's all the areas you've just discussed, and then there's the thinking about what the services as a whole, the commissioner discussion, um, all of these need to be um, need to be addressed. And it, it's not easy. Um, we shouldn't. Um, we're we're um, dealing with this on a day-to-day -day basis and thinking about every different element of it. Um, we, we, I think, as technologists, need to recognise that... Um, this is seen as a kind of one element by um, NHS clinicians and commissioners, and um, we, we need to help them learn what the potential is and how we can um, deliver together. Totally. I think it's absolutely vital that we don't see digital as a, as a sticking plaster to solve a crisis which is related to COVID. And we take the opportunity to to properly sort of set sort of step back reset and redesign services from the ground up around not just digital but around new ways of working breaking place breaking time thinking differently about what things like outpatients are and where the value is because if we do those things um covid will be a forcing factor to a much stronger and much more sustainable healthcare service versus a world where we we put some digital tools in place as a sticking plaster and quite quickly but go back to what we always knew and the problem won't go away it will just be masked so for me that's that is the most important thing we can do going forward in the next sort of six to 12 months is think about these as long-term solutions and think about different ways of delivering value to patients because if we do that the world will look a lot brighter absolutely but that that long term point i think is really crucial we are not we're never going to achieve the potential that we can achieve if we just think about single point solutions um that integration around the whole of service um addressing the long term challenges and the scale of COVID um, and what that has as a knock-on effect, not for COVID patients, but for absolutely everything else. That's where the kind of tsunami is and that's what we need to rise to. Well, Tom and Graham, thank you so much for joining us on Digital Health Unplugged. It's been a really interesting discussion. To all our listeners at home, thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget that we publish fortnightly on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iTunes and all of the other podcasting platforms. 
We're also always really keen to hear from our listeners. So if you have any suggestions or questions, please do get in contact by emailing me at adowney, that's D-O-W-N-E-Y at digitalhealth.net. That's it for this week and we will catch you next time. Bye.